0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Greg Brazil. I am the uh, North Congregation pastor. It's good to, uh, to be with you, uh, albeit in some digital form today. So we're in a uh, series right now in the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew 13, and we're looking at this little set of parables uh, that Jesus tells. And all of these parables begin with the same phrase. They begin with uh, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the parables are intending to tell us what God's reign and God's rule over us and over the world actually looks like. And so uh, last Sunday was the parable of the net. Uh, It's pretty simple, Jesus says that there is a net thrown in the sea, Uh, a bunch of fish are gathered into that, and then the good ones are put into containers, and then the bad ones are thrown out. Uh, And then Jesus ends that parable, and he says this in Matthew 13, verse 49, so it will be, At the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the point is is pretty simple. The point is that human history as we know it will eventually come to an end. It has uh, an end date on it. We don't know when this is or when all this kind of takes place, but the point is that there is judgment coming. There is an end coming to uh, history as we know it. And Jesus says that the dividing line on that day will not be rich or poor, will not be East or West or North or South or left or right or Mac or PC, whatever you are. The only dividing line uh, on that day is right righteous and wicked. And so the righteous, they will receive joy and blessing and heaven, and the wicked will receive misery and punishment and hell. And so this morning is on the topic of hell, uh, which I'm sure you're glad, you're glad you've tuned in for that, but uh, hopefully you won't tune out for this because if you're a Christian, you believe some very, very hard things. Um, we believe things like uh, creation from nothing, that God spoke and there was nothing. And then when God spoke, everything came hurling into existence. We believe in the authority of the Bible. Um, We believe in the virgin birth. We believe in the incarnation of Jesus. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We believe in the second coming um, of Jesus. We believe that apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. That unless you know him, there is no hope of being saved. So all those are minority views. All those are hard things for us to, uh, to hold on to and to believe. But we believe these things nonetheless. I think though, that believing in a literal hell, that there is a place that God sends the wicked, that that place actually exists, belief, belief in that I think maybe is the hardest thing that we believe as, um, as Christians. Because it's hard for us to believe it on the one hand, intellectually, just wrapping your mind around the the logic of hell and just all of the the verses, all the information on this, all the arguments kind of for and against this, it can boggle um, your mind. And then there's just the emotional um, wrestling with this, just trying to think through just the way this makes us feel emotionally, imagining someone living separate from God for eternity just doesn't sit well with us. And so uh, the idea of hell for modern people um, it, sounds, um, uh, it sounds repressive uh, in some sense. It sounds regressive. It sounds almost archaic and almost irrational. Um, and so if you look at the surveys, you look at religious surveys, maybe go to uh, Barna Group or Pew Research and just do some searching on uh, belief in hell, you'll find that uh, very few people actually believe in hell and even fewer think they're going to hell. And so this is a extremely difficult topic, and I would say that it's supposed to be that if this, is, if this topic is easy for you, um, if, there's, if it doesn't unsettle you at all and doesn't cause any discomfort, any kind of emotional pain for you, then you likely have not thought through it enough. You've, you've actually not wrestled with this, uh, with this issue um, enough. Now, a common, um, a common reaction to any teaching on hell Uh, in any belief in hell goes something like this. I'm sure you've heard this or you've read this somewhere. Um, It says this, how could a loving God send people to hell? If God is love and he is love, if God loves people and God made us, how could God send uh, people to hell? How could God send his image bearers um, to hell is something that many people uh, have, have wrestled with and kind of pushed back to this idea that you cannot have a loving God and hell at the same time. Let me just say a couple things briefly on that. First to clarify something is that God does not send people to hell, okay? God sends the wicked to hell, all right? So we need to be clear on the fact that God does not send um, morally innocent people to hell. God sends the wicked to hell. The wicked are those who have resisted and rebelled and rejected God and stiff-armed God their entire life. That's who God sends to hell. They aren't innocent and they aren't morally neutral. And so if that's the case, um, if someone has refused God their entire life, here's a question that we have to ask and have to answer. What would we have God do? So if someone rebels against God their entire life and refuses God and doesn't want anything to do with God, and then their life ends, what would we have God do with them? And so if you're skeptical about the issue of hell or just reject this, uh, this idea altogether, you have to answer that question. If someone refuses to acknowledge God and doesn't want God in their life, what would we have God do? Um, but I would say secondly on this, on this issue and kind of addressing the question, how could a loving God do this? The most loving person in human history talked about hell more than anyone. Do you realize that? That Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of love, he is the man of sorrows, he's the one who wept over his city, he's the one that uh, touched lepers and reached out to all of the outcasts and has compassion on the crowds. That same Jesus taught on hell and the fiery furnace and outer darkness and the place where the worm does not die and weeping and gnashing of teeth more than anyone. And he is the one who is the the Lord of love. He is the most loving person in human history. He teaches more on this than anyone. And so the same Jesus who said things like, come to me all you who are weary and carry burdens and I will give you rest, is the same Jesus who said, fear him, who can kill both body and soul in, in hell. And so what this means is that you have Jesus who is meek and mild, and he's full of grace and truth, and he is gentle and lowly, he's all those things, yet he is unapologetic about hell, which means that a loving God and a fiery hell can exist, and they do exist. Those things are not in, uh, not in contradiction. Now, the pushback, the pushback often uh, about Jesus teaching on this is that he's being metaphorical. Okay, so he's using metaphor, he's using images, um, he uses things like, you know, outer darkness and fire and the worms not dying. Those are all metaphors and images, uh, so it's so it said. And this text this morning, it's a parable, right? Parables aren't literal, parables are stories and they're not actually literal truth. So the, the idea the pushback is well, he's not being literal. Um, he's being parabolic and symbolic and metaphorical. And so it's not actually as bad as it is. Well, I would, I would grant you that he, is, that he does use images. He is being metaphorical and that he is using, uh, obviously, parables. The thing about that, though, is that all the images and all the metaphors and all the parables, um, they express a greater truth. They all, they all fall short of the truth, they don't actually express the greater reality. So all the images and parables are meant to tell us that there's a greater reality. And so the parable itself, they, uh, they don't go beyond reality, the parables actually just fall short of reality. And so I would say it, I would say it like this, um, that all these stories and metaphors they illustrate greater truths and greater realities than than the actual story or the metaphor. Plus, no one does this with um, with Luke 15, uh, and so Luke 15 is the parable of the two the two sons. Uh, One of them, the youngest, uh, he rebels against his father. He basically says, dad, I wish you were dead, takes all of his inheritance and moves off to Vegas and just squanders everything. And what happened in Vegas did not stay in Vegas because we all know, we all know what happened. And so he comes to his senses, he decides to go home and his plan is to work for his dad, to be a servant for his father is his only hope, he thinks. But what happens? The father is apparently waiting for him and sees him a long way off. He is a speck in his eye. He's so far out there. And the father jumps off the porch and runs out to him and just tackles him, as it were, and just hugs him, kisses him, and throws a party. Now, I've never heard someone quote that parable or refer to that parable and say, well, it's a parable. He's not being literal. Because no one does that. Yes, it is a parable, but the parable expresses a greater reality. There's even something greater than a story of a father running out to his rebellious son. The great reality is is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and God saw you a long way off and he jumped off the porch and ran out to you in his great love. He rescued you in his uh, through his son by grace you've been saved. That's the reality. And so you see that images and metaphors, they, they fall short of a greater reality they're trying to express uh, and to illustrate for us. And so what that means is that all the images of darkness uh, in the Bible about hell, all the images of fire or a fiery furnace or a worm not dying and all the, all the language that Jesus uses, it means that hell is actually far worse than those things, And so hell is this place where you lose the presence and joy and blessing of God forever. You lose the favor and the face of God fully and finally and eternally. The soul itself begins to decompose and shrivel and you completely lose touch with yourself and with others and fall into utter and unending despair. And so hell is where you lose God And the worst thing that you can lose in your life is God. That's why Jesus says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because hell is a place of eternal regret and remorse and the the pain of losing God just, uh, it just courses through every fiber of your being and then that's your Your reality, the the idea of losing God, falling under God's wrath sends pain and remorse and regret. That's what all the images are talking about. That's what all the metaphors and all the parables on this. Jesus is absolutely clear on this issue. And so here's what uh, C.S. Lewis says uh, in his book, The Problem of Pain. He has a whole chapter uh, in that on, on hell. And Lewis says this, that there is no doctrine, talking about hell, which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of scripture and specially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. And so all all I'm saying thus far is that as hard as this topic is, um, and as unpopular as it is and how it doesn't set with us emotionally, how it's, uh, it, is, it is painful to work through and unsettling to work through, we have to hold to what the Bible and what Jesus says about this issue. Because if, if, if you ask the question, is hell real? You have to also ask the question, is the cross real? Is the gospel real? Is our salvation real? Is heaven real? And so we can't just pick and choose and just erase what God says um, about about this issue. So where do we go from here? Let me just, let me just uh, ask two questions this morning um, and try to give some answers to this uh, and then we'll be done. So two questions. Why does Jesus teach on hell uh, is one and then how do we escape hell? I think those are two important questions for us to, to wrestle through. Why does he teach on this? Why does he talk? talk about it so much. And so almost at every turn, he's talking about either money or hell or, or possibly both in the, same, in the same parable. So why does he teach on this? And then how do we escape it? What hope do we have to, uh, to, uh, to find heaven and not, uh, and not hell? So first of all, uh, why, does, why does Jesus teach on this topic? Jesus is a master teacher. He is the greatest teacher in history. Uh, there's no one more wise or insightful Uh, or intelligent than Jesus is. He knows how the world works because he made it. And he knows how humans work because he made us. And so when Jesus teaches on any topic, um, there's always a reason, there's always a purpose. And so whenever he teaches on hell, it's not random. It's not just meant to scare us or just merely to shock us. There's always purpose and reason behind this. And so what is the purpose of Jesus teaching on hell? There are lots of ways to answer that. Um, here's how, what I want to say about it this morning. I think that he teaches on hell because the reality of hell, it awakens us to the dangers of sin and living for ourselves. I think at, at, at bare minimum that whenever he teaches about this, this topic, it awakens us to how severe it is if we live for ourselves and, uh, and pursue sin and never walk in repentance and walk in holiness. I think it, it awakens us to that. And so whenever Jesus says in this parable here, it's the wicked who are cast into hell. It's the wicked who are, who are separated out from the righteous and they are thrown in this fiery furnace and there there's weeping of, of, of gnashing and teeth. The wicked are those who only live for themselves. Um, there's no pursuit of God, there's no love for him. They do what feels right and what seems right and they run from God and resist God and have no regard for God in their life. And Jesus teaching on this, he's warning us not to be like that. He's warning us of the dangers of having no regard for God and living only for yourself. That's why he's talking about this, to sober us up, to wake us up. So you might say that, that teaching on hell is like smelling salts to our soul. So if you, if you watch sports, whenever sports come, hopefully come back one, one day, um, if an athlete collides with someone else or has just some accident and they're, and they're knocked unconscious or they're, they're just a bit foggy, you'll see a trainer kind of run out and they'll break a little packet and they'll put it before their nose. And what happens when they do this, these smelling salts, this ammonia, NH3, fills their nostrils and goes into their lungs and it triggers their them to inhale and it, and it hopefully wakes them up. That's what teaching on hell's meant to do for us. It's meant to fill our spiritual nostrils, as it were, and just trigger this reaction to wake us up, to open our eyes to the reality of sin and living for ourselves and just building our life on our own desires, our own means, and having no regard for God, that's what hell is meant to to do, is to awaken us in this sense. So uh, think of Matthew 5, uh, which we were in maybe, I think like two years ago, uh, it's, been, it's been a while. So Matthew 5, Jesus teaches, um, he teaches on hell uh, very briefly, but he says this, that if your eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out, to tear it out. Uh, if your hand causes you to sin, to cut it off. Um, now, why don't you just say this? Is Jesus just against hand-eye coordination? Like, why is he saying this? Well, what he says is it's better for us to enter heaven or enter life with one hand and one, and one eye than to enter into hell with both. You see what he's doing? He's using using the reality of hell to help us fight against temptation and sin. He's saying, well, it's far better for us to lose even our own limbs and our eyes than to go into hell. And he's using this to wake us up about the realities of living for ourselves Uh, giving in to temptations over and over and over, not being uh, in any way walking in repentance, walking in confession. This is the danger of living for yourself, Jesus says. Um, Romans 1, you see this, uh, Paul covers this issue. Romans 1, uh, Paul is talking about every human alive uh, and how we've turned from God, we've rebelled from him. And there are three places in Romans 1 where Paul uses the same phrase, uh, and the phrase is, and God gave them up or God gave them over. I'll just read, it, read these for you. Romans 1, 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And what he's talking about is that humans are walking uh, in rebellion against God, refusing to acknowledge God, refusing over and over and over uh, to open their lives to God. So God gives them up, Paul says. Romans 1, 26, uh, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so his point seems to be that, that continued willful disobedience, refusing over and over and over, hardening yourself against God, what God eventually does is he hands you over to that. And so if you, if you just wake up and you just build your life around your desires, your needs, your wants, your aspirations, your dreams, your, uh, your impulses, what you feel is right with no regard for God, eventually, Paul says, God gives you over to that. And the final act of God handing someone over is hell. It's God giving them what they most want. If a person doesn't want God and refuses to acknowledge him and honor him and seek him and run to him and reach out to him. And that person dies, eventually God says, fine, have it your way. And God hands them over to what they actually want. That's why uh, C.S. Lewis would say that uh, in The Great Divorce that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Is that people don't want God and so God gives them over to that and the final step in that is handing them over um, to, to hell. And so whenever we hear this, it's meant to wake us up. I mean, it is meant to shock us. It is meant to open our eyes. It is meant to just remind us of how sinful sin really is and how dangerous it is if you wake up and only live for yourself with no regard for God, no regard for the gospel, no regard for obedience and walking in God's, uh, in God's ways. This should in some way Uh, terrify us and awaken us to these realities. So if you're a sleepy Christian, um, what I mean mean by that is if you're just kind of dragging along spiritually right now, um, you barely pray, you barely, if at all, get in the word, Uh, any temptation just seems to, the slightest temptation just seems to overtake you and the spiritual life just feels like such a burden and so heavy right now, this can help you. Thinking about the reality of hell and considering Jesus' teaching on this, let this ammonia fill your nostrils and wake you up. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter, uh, or 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, he's talking about how judgment's coming, how God's going to judge the entire world uh, one day. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? You hear what he's saying? That judgment's coming. And if it's coming, what should your life look like? What do you want your life to look like? If God one day is going to bring everyone to account, going to judge every human to ever live, then what should your life look like? And that's meant to wake us up to wake us up, to pursue God, to run to Him, to fight against our sin, to wage war on temptation, to trust God, to find our refuge, our hope in Him, to fall in love with Him. That's what the reality of hell is meant um, to do for us. Um, I had a, someone ask me recently, uh, a few weeks ago, um, what I've learned from all this, all the this, this season that we're in, kind of what I'm, what I'm learning, um, and I said I said there are two things. One, um, I really miss baseball, uh, which you may laugh at, but I really do. I'm, I'm watching things now like the floor is lava. Uh, things are really bad right now. So it's coming back, but uh, really miss that. But, but secondly, and, and more importantly, it, it was amazing to me how quickly life came to a halt for all of us, wasn't it? I mean, back in I mean, March or so, Uh, in a matter of a couple of days, our life came to a screeching halt. I mean, everything just stopped. It's like Thanos snapped his fingers and everything stopped. And whenever whenever that happened, it didn't matter how rich you were, didn't matter, matter how famous you were, how many Instagram followers you had, it uh, didn't matter how fit you were. It did not matter who you were, how old, how young. Everyone's life stopped in that, in, that, in that time. And it wasn't just Austin. It wasn't just Texas. It wasn't just America. It was the entire world almost just completely stopped in a matter of a few weeks. Now, what Jesus is telling us in this in this parable and what hell teaches us is that one day, life is going to come to a screeching halt on a level far greater than, than COVID-19. Every single human will stand before him. He will judge every person. He will always judge righteously. Um, and so the question is, what should your life look like? If, if that day is coming, that should, that should wake you up, make you examine your life, increase your holiness, Increase your pursuit of God. That's why I think Jesus teaches on this topic. Now, if right now you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm terrified, what do I what do? I do? Uh, that's the second question this morning, and we'll end with this, is that how do we escape this? So if it's true, and I believe it is, uh, Jesus talks about this more than, than anyone, and we believe that everything Jesus says is true and right. If this is true, then what hope do we have of escaping hell? What, what is our hope and what is any assurance we might have? And so uh, here's what Jesus says in verse, um, verse 49 and 50, and here, I think here's the answer. The angels will come out on that day and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, that's the evil, into the fiery furnace. Okay, so here's the question. Who is in the fiery furnace? The evil, the wicked, those who have rebelled and and ran from God their entire life—they're in the furnace. Well, who's not in the furnace? The righteous. All right. So the, the the there's your answer. You have to be righteous. The way to avoid hell, Jesus says, is that you must be righteous. The way to to gain heaven and all the joy and blessing uh, and to enjoy God forever—that. The person that gets to do that is the righteous person. The wicked, uh, they're sent to hell and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's your answer. You have to be righteous. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you feel righteous? If we take your, your good deeds and have a scale and put your good deeds on, you know, on one side and your sinful deeds on the other side, where's the scale gonna tip? Let me answer it for you you're doomed, and so am I. If, if, that's how, if that's how this whole thing plays out, that we have to be righteous just by our own good works and by our you know, good things outweighing our bad things, then we are doomed. We are doomed unless there is someone else who is righteous for us. So uh, years ago, I was at a, uh, was at a conference and uh, R.C. Sproul was there. R.C. Sproul passed away a few years ago Uh, He was a brilliant theologian, writer, pastor. Um, And he was on uh, at the conference and they were having this, you know, this panel discussion where you have all the speakers on stage who answer all your questions. Hopefully it's why you pay uh, to go there. Um, And I forget what the question was, something about, I don't know, the gospel or Jesus. I forget what it was. Uh, R.C. Sproul starts talking and he says this just off the cuff, nonchalant comment. Um, He says, And salvation is by works. And the whole room, about 2,000 of us, the whole room just fell silent. And so he kind of says it again, that the only way you can be saved is by works. Now, everyone's confused because if you've heard of this guy, I mean, for 50 years, he has talked about uh, the doctrines of grace, That grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, it's not works, nothing you can do uh, to save yourself. It's only uh, through Christ. And so we're all a little bit just kind of wondering what's going on. And so he says again, salvation is by works. And then he says this, but they're not your works, they're someone else's. And everyone just breathed again. Because what he's talking about, what he was saying is that, yes, salvation is by works, but Jesus, he's the one that worked for us. He was the one who was righteous. He's the one who earned our salvation. You can't earn it, but Jesus can. You wanna know why? Because he's righteous. Jesus was sinless. Uh, Jesus wasn't just sinless. He was righteous. He never disobeyed God, but he always obeyed God. He, all the things that God wanted him to do, he always has, had accomplished those things. He perfectly obeyed God, though he was tempted in every way because he was righteous. And if you are in him, and if he is in you, then you are righteous. But if not, then there's no hope you have of becoming righteous. And so now if you are in Christ, your, his righteous life now becomes yours. God made him, sin, uh, made him who knew no sin to be sin that you might become righteous. That's the, what the gospel is all about. And that is the way that we escape hell. That's the only way you escape. Um, the only way you have any assurance that you will never, ever lose God is through Jesus. And here's why. Uh, Matthew will tell us this later uh, as to how this, this whole thing works out. When Jesus died, Matthew 27 tells us uh, two interesting things that happen. Um, On the one hand, um, Jesus in a very, very mysterious way lost God while he's on the cross. Uh, Matthew 27 tells us that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then darkness covers the land at midday. The whole land is filled with darkness. And so in a very, very real way, Jesus took hell for you. Jesus knows what hell feels like because he actually felt the loss of God in that moment for you. That's your assurance. That's how you know that you will never lose God because Jesus was, he was sent into the darkness. Jesus went through hell for us. Jesus came under the wrath of God, which we deserved And now that is our only hope. And the only one that you have and the only one that you need, by the way, you need nothing else but him. And he is the answer. So because of him, you can be certain that heaven is yours. That all the joy and blessing of heaven forever, it awaits you because you're righteous through him. So with him, your future only gets better. Without him though, your future only gets worse. Because if Jesus, if Jesus went through all of that for you, imagine the cost of rejecting that. Imagine what it would cost someone that sees all that Christ has done for them to rescue them. And if you reject that, the cost is infinite. That's how good he is. And so the hope is this, this awakens us a bit that our heart begins to beat a little bit faster for God this morning as we think about the reality of this. There's more urgency in us. There's more fights in our holiness. That's what teaching on this issue is meant to do. And if you don't know Jesus, you can right now. You call out to him, you reach out to him, you, he will find you in this and you will have assurance forever um, that heaven awaits you. Here's what J.I. Packer, and I'll close with this, J.I. Packer Um, who, by the way, uh, just yesterday went to be with the Lord after, uh, I think, 80 years. Uh, Phenomenal theologian. Uh, J.I. Packer says this, It really is a mercy to mankind that God in Scripture is so explicit about hell, we cannot now say that we have not been warned. Let me pray for us. Father would you um, God would you sober our minds this morning as we think about this Father I'm certain that just over the last couple of months that that many of our of our spiritual lives have grown lax and we perhaps have grown d- distant from you and our hearts have maybe hardened a bit towards you and grown a bit, a bit cold towards you. God, would you thaw the ice and would you wake us up? God, there are, there are 10,000 reasons to obey you. Hell's not the only one, but God, it certainly is one of those. But it's better for us to enter heaven blind and without our hands and feet than to enter hell fit and vibrant and healthy. And so God, would you wake us up? Would you stir us and would you sober our minds? God, would you help us to realize how deadly sin is, how sinful sin is, how, God, just how wrong it is to live for ourselves and just build our life with no regard for you, with no thought to you, with no reference to you. God, would you... Let the ammonia just fill our nostrils and God, open our eyes and cause us to breathe and to set our gaze on you. Jesus, thank you for teaching us on this. It is hard for us to deal with, hard for us to just wrestle through. So we thank you that you are kind and you are severe. May both of those things um, lead us to repentance lead us to loving you more and to being more aware and more sensitive to to things around us and just having our heart in tune with who you are. And so God, use this day, hopefully not to not to confuse, not to not to scare us in some unhealthy way, but in in the most godly way to cause us to move even closer to you. God, I want to pray for those who are listening who have never never embraced your son, never said yes to your son, would you right now grant them the gift of faith to confess that Jesus is their Lord? And God, fill their life with joy, fill their life with blessing, fill their life with hope and assurance that that heaven, that seeing you one day, that's what awaits them. And so God, wake us up. Uh, God, use this, may tomorrow be uh, a day we wake up and we live with more zeal, God, with all of our might for you. Jesus, we thank you that you have taken hell for us, that you, ha- you were plunged into the darkness for us, that you died, that you took all that we deserve and God raised you from the dead. Now you sit as our king over all things. Help us to look to you, the one who has given every way for us to find assurance and hope, even for escaping um, the fires and the realities of hell. And so God, thank you for this day. God, use this to strengthen us, use this to, to, God, to cause us to love you even more. And we ask all this in Jesus' great name, amen.